Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table which animate life by love. Over the next few weeks, we're looking to get input from our community on what it may look like to return to in-person gatherings. We want to hear from you about your health and safety comfort level and concerns, as well as your ideas and priorities. If you head to our website at pearlchurch.com news, you can take a short survey to give us your input. While you're there, you can sign up for our weekly email list so you can hear about opportunities that are coming up. Thank you. Throughout the season of Lent, the church intentionally walks with Jesus through experiences of suffering and death. This year, rather than exploring experiences of suffering and death that culminate in resurrection, we are considering violence in religious storytelling, which finds its end not in resurrection, but in the perpetuation of increased violence. This sermon series will deconstruct religious stories that give rise to bad news, misogyny, bigotry, and tribalism in Jesus' name. But rather than concluding in deconstruction, This series intends to reimagine these same stories so that they more thoughtfully and reasonably cohere with Jesus, who declares the favor of the Lord upon you. Part of the reason for this series now is that I I think we are all becoming increasingly aware that Christianity in America is at a crisis point. On the one hand, it's become impossible to ignore that evangelicalism has wound itself up with power privilege, and aligned itself with racism, misogyny, homophobia, and violence, all in Jesus' name. On the other hand, uh, there is right now an active reimagination of what Christianity can mean, which aims to return the vision of Jesus for peace, undoing violence, and making room for the other at a common table. At Pearl, we are deeply invested in this project of reimagination in all that we do, especially reimagining our religious text, the Bible. Now, the power of our religious text lies not so much in its facts uh, as in the way we engage it as a metaphor and symbol. It's one thing for us to read the story of the Exodus, the bare fact of Moses standing before Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. What resonates with us is not so much that the story happened once, but rather that we find ourselves in this story. This story becomes a metaphor for our current circumstances. And so throughout the centuries, the readers of biblical stories have found themselves either literally or metaphorically in bondage needing exodus, literally or metaphorically sick needing healing, literally or metaphorically in exile in need of restoration. I want us to look at one particular metaphor today, which has been used to justify incomprehensible violence. The metaphor of the king of Israel, and most particularly, the metaphor of the reign of David and Solomon. For a brief period, the Hebrew people united around kings whose military campaigns and foreign diplomacy vastly expanded the borders, uh, the wealth, and the influence of Israel. 
It didn't take long before this kingdom divided and, and other powers in the area regained the ascendancy. But the story of King David and King Solomon has been the metaphor behind many rounds of colonization and violence, inspiring a political imagination of theocratic control. Crusaders, Spanish conquistadores, Puritans, colonial powers, evangelical politicians all use this story, either directly or by allusion, to underwrite violence. The glory of David and Solomon's reign seems to point that the success, the size, the power, the numbers, the wealth, these are all a sign of God's blessing and the ultimate goal for God's people. Now, it's certainly true that in the Hebrew Bible, we find a thread that looks back on the United Kingdom of David and Solomon as a golden era. Uh, This thread was seized on by the zealots in the time of Christ to argue that Israel should again have political and military ascendancy against Rome. And it has been seized on by theologians ever since Constantine baptized the Roman Empire as Christian to explain and to justify how the use of a military power and political might could mesh with a religion centered on a crucified Christ. Surely the son of David came to restore the kingdom of David. But is that really the point of this story? Now, here's where it's really helpful to understand how the Hebrew Bible came into its present form and what kind of text we have. Uh, It's really easy to read stories like that of David and Solomon in isolation, as if these stories are a standalone tale that makes its own point, right? Uh, You could imagine very easily a David movie where the ending is the triumphant King David looking across his vast, wealthy territory and handing off power to his son Solomon, setting us up for the sequel. Uh, The Hebrew Bible is a very different kind of text from that. Uh, It represents a many-sided conversation that's largely posed around a question. And this question is being asked in Babylon many generations after Solomon, when the power and the might and the wealth is gone, and the kingdom has been crushed under the might of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, and the people are in exile. And in exile, the people are asking, what happened? How is it that we, the people with the temple of God in our midst, were exiled? Now, some of the texts of the Hebrew Bible, like Lamentations and many of the Psalms, are just simply the cry of grief and loss from the trauma of destruction. And some books, like the prophetic texts, try to answer the question, what happened directly? But also, in the time during and just after the Babylonian exile, there was an editing and a reassembling of the texts into their final form in order to answer this question by telling the people's history a certain way. The unit of books, which runs in our Bible from Deuteronomy through 2 Kings, is a carefully assembled text. It is a unit which aims to answer this question. Now, early in this history, the book of Deuteronomy lays a clue in the form of instruction for the kings. We read in the book of Deuteronomy, when you've come into the land that the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, 
You may indeed set over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose. One of your own community you may set as king over you. You're not permitted to put a foreigner over you who's not of your own community. Even so, here's the important part. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. And he must not acquire many wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Also silver and gold, he must not acquire in great great quantity for himself. Okay, so four things. Uh, don't get lots of horses and chariots. Don't go back to Egypt for those horses and chariots. Don't have many wives and don't have lots of silver and gold. Okay, with this text in mind, which is laid out in Deuteronomy, the beginning of this unit of history, and we work through the text and we read all the history, we come uh, in the book of Kings to its, the, the climax of the history of Israel, the golden age of Solomon. It's supposed to be the high point. And we read, Solomon gathered together chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Okay, okay wait. The king made silver as, as common in Jerusalem as stones. He made cedars as numerous as the sycamores of the Shephelah. Uh, wait. Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q, and the king's traders received them from Q at a price. Okay, wait. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Uh, okay, you, you get the point. <laughs> you see, the editors of the Hebrew Bible wove right into the text a critique and a warning. We read of Solomon's power and this kingdom, and we might think this is a golden era with God's approval. But, and this is the Deuteronomist's point, consider the cost and what it took for the kingdom to get there. Solomon's rule made Israel an empire, and empire is always built on crushed lives. Israel becomes the enslaver Egypt, Israel becomes the one from whom God must liberate the enslaved. You see, any reading of the Hebrew Bible that holds up David and Solomon's reigns as a model that says, this is us and we should also have power and wealth and might and control because then we're in the will of God. Well, that's a reading that misses the deep and many-layered critique of empire that runs throughout the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament. Now, I want to look at this from a, another angle, because this critique is not just in the story of David and Solomon. It's all throughout the text. Uh, in the Very, very early in the Hebrew Bible, we find the familiar story of Babel, which we read this morning. You have the people, they're all of one language and they have the same words and they migrate to a plain and they say to one another, come, let us make bricks and build them, th burn them thoroughly. And they say, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let's make a name for ourselves, uh, lest we be scattered on the, the face of the whole earth. And then God comes down and he sees the city and, and God says, oh, these people all have one language and this is the only beginning of what they'll do and nothing they propose to do will be impossible. Let's confuse their language so they won't understand one another and the Lord scatters them abroad uh, and they leave off building the city. Now, on first glance, this story seems to tell of a capricious God who feels threatened by the success of humanity. But pause. 
Think about the people who told and retold and retold this story, who put it at the the start of their book. This book is written and read by a people whose founding narrative is this. We were enslaved in order to build towers. We were enslaved to make bricks in the blazing heat of the desert. We were enslaved to stack those bricks up to heaven to build a legacy for the pharaohs. And from that, God set us free. That's our story. That's where we come from. The story of Babel is told in the book of a people who know that towers to heaven do not build themselves. Those who say, come, let's build a tower to heaven, are those who have massive, nameless, faceless forces of slaves. People who can be brutalized, whose lives are disposable, who can do the backbreaking work for them. Monuments and ziggurats and towers have a cost. They cost the crushed lives of slaves. You see, the scattering of the people here in the Babel story is a proto-exodus. It is God liberating the crushed. This is what the Hebrew scriptures tell us. Empires like Solomon's cost They cost lives crushed to build empire. Now, I want to draw a comparison uh, from Babel to the story of Pentecost. And these two events are paired together frequently because in Babel, you have a people united with one language and it's scattered into many tongues. But at Pentecost, 50 days after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and 10 days after the ascension of Jesus, at Pentecost, we're told the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak a multitude of languages so that all the people who are scattered in, uh, who are gathered into Jerusalem from the far-flung Roman Empire, they're able to hear the gospel proclamation in their own language. So at Babel, one language becomes many, but in Pentecost, many languages are gathered together in understanding and comprehension. But there's another parallel between these two stories. In Babel, there's a tower being built, and we've seen that tower is built on the lives of humans. Well, at Pentecost, Peter is the main person who speaks uh, at Pentecost. He's the one who gives the sermon. And later, he elaborates on his message. And in his letter, he writes, Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And, like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You see, at Babel, a tower is built on top of the crushed lives of slaves. And the Hebrew Bible tells us that even the empire of David and Solomon was the same, built on crushed lives. What went wrong? We became Egypt, the Hebrew Bible explains. We became Babel. But Peter tells us the kingdom of God is different. For at Pentecost, the language is divided or reunited into one Uh, not monolithic, not the same. Rather, the differences don't divide us. And at Pentecost, Peter tells us God is building not a tower, but a house. And that house is not built on the lives of crushed people. No, this house is built out of the lives of thriving and flourishing individuals. This home is made of redeemed, precious, valuable lives. In Babel, in Egypt, 
in Solomon's kingdom, in Rome, in crusades and conquistadores and political campaigns, there's always a story told that explains away the crushed lives. We'll be secure. We'll be remembered. We'll be the people of God. We'll convert the heathen. We'll make our country great. There's always a story that distracts us from the cost The towers are built on top of crushed lives, enslaved lives, dominated lives, marginalized lives. But the house of God is different. This house is itself made out of the individual lives redeemed and flourishing of all humanity. So the story of this house can never be used to justify crushing lives because those lives are the whole point. Part of our goal in this series is to deconstruct religious stories that have led to violence. And the the story of David and Solomon's reigns of splendor and power and might have been used as a key metaphor throughout church history Christian empire has declared again and again, what matters is that Christian institutions must be in power, for that's what God wants. But Peter paints a totally different picture, and one that can lead us beyond deconstruction, the deconstruction of violent stories, and into reconstruction, into reimagination. Yes, we can name and identify the abuse of power in in Christ's name. We can dismantle theologies which claim divine blessing on empire and power that crushes lives in order to build a tower to heaven. But we can also start to name what building the house of God looks like. It's a dwelling place constructed out of human lives seen, voices heard, where each person is cherished. We can name that building the house of God will require an awareness that it's easy. It's easy for success and power and privilege to lead us to overlook, silence, and oppress individual human lives. And we can name that there's no goal whatsoever that's worth the crushing of human lives. Because those human lives are themselves the house we're building. And we can reimagine a way of being Christian where our sacred story directs us to center on building a common table. In contrast to empires and towers, what does it look like for us to build a house with room at a table? I think that's a question that can enliven our imaginations. We can start to imagine together, what does it look like to sit at table What is it like when you are at a dinner party and you feel welcome, that you belong, that you're seen and heard, the conversation is including everyone? What are the skills, the virtues, the capacities that make for a warmly welcoming home and table? And we could start naming them. Attentiveness, listening, generosity, honesty and vulnerability, care for practical needs, the ability to shed tears and to laugh and to give advice or to listen as the moment needs, the ability to be a conversation partner, to draw out of others their stories and experiences, and to bring out plenty of good, wonderful, delightful things that sustain us. See, this is what the Christian life is meant to be like. The Christian way invites us to learn and grow these capacities 
The, the Christian story points us to imagine a house built out of the flourishing lives of each person. And in that house to imagine a table. And at that table, we gather for a feast and we tell our stories and we hear stories and we pull up a chair for the person we didn't think could ever belong because they too are welcome. The Christian story points us to imagine a table where the true king says, myself is for you. Peace be upon you. Will you pray with me? Generous God, stir up in us an imagination, not of towers and power, but of a house, a table with room for all. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Mm